Merry Christmas to each and every single one of you. I'm so grateful that you're here this morning. I hope you have a Bible, something that you can open up or turn on, and that you will join me in Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Of course, as always, on the back of that um, bulletin, if you want to use those notes as we referenced um, in in God's Word this morning, we read this text last night. And we read this text this morning as Ryan read for us the Christmas story again. And so at the, at the sake of being repetitive or going after it again, I want to direct our attention for just a few moments back to Luke chapter 2. And we're going to look at the names given to today. The names given to Jesus. I don't know how many of you all think about names or what names mean or why do we have names or maybe even how many of you have thought why do the majority of people in this room have three names? I mean, how did, that, how did that start? Where did that come from? How do we understand that? You can think about for some, you have a uh, first name, and that's the name, your common name, and then you have the surname being your last name, and that, uh, that identifies you as a family. But how many of us think about why do we have three Names. It seems like a bit of a tradition. You come and you have a child. And so last Saturday, we were there in the, or two Saturdays ago, we were there in the hospital and they bring us the, the documentation saying you have to name this child. And so on there, there is three blanks. You have the first name and you have the middle name and you have the last name. And I realize that some people do different things, but the majority of us have three names. Well, Over a year ago, there was an article in the Reader's Digest, and in the article, the author was talking about how did we get in a society where we have three names. The author went back to the Roman days under the Roman rules and said that it was in the Roman culture that you had a praenomen, which was the personal name, you had a nomen, which was the family name, and you had a cognomen, which was indicating which branch of the family you were from. I thought, well, that's not really that great of an interesting story. And so then the author continues on and says, well, then you get to the 1700s and you have the Spanish and the Arabic cultures that would give their, their children names from ancestors and family members that came before them to identify them and connect them in the family tree. Then the author went on and said that then it came to the Middle Ages and the Europeans couldn't decide whether they're giving their name a regular name or a saint name. So they decided they were going to name their child the first name, which would be the common name. The second name would be the baptized name. And the third name would be the surname or their last name. And that tradition is carried on where now you have people that have a first name and a middle name and a last name. And I realize there's some peculiarities in the room. Some of you all go by your middle name. Some of you go by just initials. But the majority of people usually go by um, first name, middle name, and last name. And names matter. Names are important. My name growing up was Spence. But when Spence wasn't doing what Spence was supposed to be doing, I would hear Charles Warren McConnell. And you know, just as well as I do, when your mother or your parent or a grandparent goes to invoking the middle name, you have got problems. You have got issues. And names matter. And whether you call me a name kind of indicates how you feel about me, what you think about me. And when it comes even to our home, and I'm looking at our children today, and I look at them, and the way that I say their name indicates the nature of our relationship. Names matter. 
So here in Luke chapter 2, the angels, as Ryan has read and as Adam read last night, the angels come to the shepherds. And as they come to the shepherds here in Luke chapter 2, it says there in verse 10, And the angel said to them, now he's got a multitude of angels with him, but you have one angel in particular speaking, and it says to the shepherds in verse 10, And the angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. And he says, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The angel here in the text before us gives us three different names or titles for Jesus. So my question before us, and the question you see there in your notes in the back of the bulletin, is what do you call him? What do you call the baby that we celebrate being born today? In the Bible, and Bible commentators will say that you will find references, titles, and names. Over 150 names and titles given to Jesus. Giving reference to who Jesus is, who Jesus was, what Jesus is doing. Over 150 names and titles throughout Scripture. And yet, here in this text, the angel focuses in on three different names. Three different descriptions about Jesus. So in the brief few moments we have together, I just want you to consider with me. Just reflect. Just remind ourselves of these three names and why these three names matter today. The first name you see there in verse 11, as the angel says, this is good news. And he says, there is a Savior. A Savior. Now we understand that we just sang we have a Savior. We understand what it means to have a Savior. But we often forget that according to the Word of God, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And what the Bible teaches us is that everyone needs a Savior. Why is this good news that a Savior has come? Why is it good news that God has sent us a Savior? Because every person needs a Savior. And there's sometimes we, in our own personal lives, we can start to think, well, I'm a pretty good person, or I'm doing it pretty well. And we stop to forget, we start to, start to forget, stop remembering, we start to forget that we need a Savior. And when the angels are looking at them and they're giving them good news and they're saying, you have a Savior, a Savior has come. And the angels are excited about it. The angels are worked up. The angels have that little Ric Flair going, "Woo! you have a Savior. And we get up on Sunday morning, Christmas morning, and we're like, presents, cooking, family, events. And we stop being Excited that this day represents God sending us a Savior. And and the angels are looking at them and the angels are saying, do you understand what this day means? Do you understand why this is good news? Because God has sent a Savior and Jesus came to save people. Oftentimes we go in the book of John and we think about John chapter 3 and we think about for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And we think about that verse and we know that verse, but then we forget what it says in verse 17. It says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And so what the angels are doing here in Luke 10 and 11, or Luke 2 and 11, they're saying this is good news. God has sent a Savior, and this Savior has come to save people. 
I can see you're so excited about this. And I can see you're like, oh, yeah, that's awesome. And you forget why this is such a big deal. The shepherds, historically, culturally, the shepherds were unclean people. And in the Jewish culture, when you were unclean, you couldn't go into the temple. You couldn't offer the sacrifices. You couldn't come and pre- present yourself to God. And in a state of being unclean, there is a separation because of your uncleanness. There was a separation between you and God. And so therefore, there was always a division. There was always something keeping you at a distance, at arm's length. And so the shepherds, by nature, were always unclean people because of their profession. But then shepherds were also always distant from God because the shepherds weren't the highest job on the ladder, if you will. You didn't have little Jewish children growing up saying, one day I dream about being a shepherd. It was the shepherds that were the uneducated. It was the shepherds that were uh, the uh, illiterate. It was the shepherds that were the unlearned. It was the shepherds that weren't the smartest and the brightest. It was the shepherds that was considered, if I can do nothing else, I will go and be a shepherd. And it was the shepherds that spent most of their times isolated from society. They were the ones that spent all their time out in the field taking care of animals. It was the ones that didn't have those connections and those relationships. It was those people that stayed away from other people, isolated, dejected, away, away from the presence of God. So as the angel comes in in verse 2 and verse 11, he comes in to give them good news. And when he tells them that they have a Savior, what the the shepherds are understanding is the shepherds recognize and the shepherds see that they need saved because their uncleanness keeps them from God. Their vocation keeps them from people. It is because of their lifestyle that keeps them from understanding that they're right before God. And so when the angels come in and they say, do you understand that a Savior has come not to the people in the city, not to the priests in the the tabernacle, not to the wealthy, not to the educated. Christ has come to everybody. And the shepherds had something to get excited about. Because it doesn't matter your education. It doesn't matter your ethnicity. It doesn't matter about your last name. It doesn't matter about your skin color. It doesn't matter about where you're at in life. It doesn't matter where your address is. It doesn't matter about what you've done in the past. It doesn't matter about where you're coming from. It doesn't matter. You have a Savior. And so the angels come to them and say, do you understand why this is good news? I think it would be fair to say the majority of us in this room probably call him our Savior. But the reality is, is that there is no way to God apart from this Savior. John 14, 6 makes it very clear. The only way to God is through Jesus. So the angels, when they come to them in Luke chapter 2 and verse 11, and he says, this is good news. You have a Savior. And I think there is a large majority in this church and maybe in this community that would say, yes, we call him our Savior. We made a decision. We prayed a prayer. We walked the aisle. We got baptized. We know that we are saved. And so you look at people and you talk to people and say, do you understand what it means to be saved? Yes. Are you saved? Yes. And many people will call him our Savior. But as the angel comes to the shepherds. Not only does he tell them about a Savior, but he also tells them about the hope that they have in Jesus. 
You see, there's a lot of word about, there's a lot of talk and there's a lot of terminology about where do we find hope. And some people think they find hope in money. Some people think they find hope in therapy. Some people think they find hope in medication. Some people think they find hope in possession. Some people think they find hope in relationships. Some people think they find hope in themselves or something that is a distraction. And yet when the shepherds are there and the angel comes to them, he says, this is your source of hope, that you have a new identity in Jesus Christ. Christ. So he says, not only do they have a Savior, but then notice he goes on in there in verse 11. That's the first title, name, reference. But then the angel says, who is Christ? Now some of your translations might use the word Messiah. You may say, why does it say Christ and Messiah? Those two different things. No, the way that Bible translators work is the same original word, Christos, in the original language, but it depends upon the way they're identifying it. So the reason why some of your Bible translations will say Messiah is because the translators say that it's referring to a Hebrew title. It's referring to a Hebrew position, a Hebrew role. So they just mean, they just make into Messiah. Where some of your Bibles will say, no, Christos is transliterated into Christ. It's the same thing. What the Bible is telling us is is that this is, as the text indicates, this is the anointed one sent by God. They're different words. The angel doesn't use the same word three different times. No, he uses soter, he uses Christos, and he uses kurios. And so he's identifying Jesus in three different ways. Identifies him first as the Savior, and second as the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one sent by God. God. And you may say, well, Spence, what does that make a difference to us today? Because God sent his son. God sent his son. God sent himself in the flesh. God sent the second part of the Trinity. God sent The only person that loved us enough to die for our sins. God sent Jesus. And it's not just Jesus the Nazarene. It's not just Jesus the Jewish carpenter. It's not just Jesus the mighty prophet. It's not just Jesus the homeboy. It's not just Jesus the man upstairs. No, he sent Jesus as the Christ, the hope, the anointed one, the one that God sent to reveal himself to us. Do you realize that what we know about God and how we know God is not only revealed through God's word, the Holy Bible, but it is also revealed to us through the model, the example, and the presence of Jesus Christ. The reason why we know about God is because of Jesus. And so when we think about the Christ and we think about what the Christ means, we understand that when Jesus sent Christ, Colossians says that he is the image of the invisible God. It's like God is saying, I want you to see who I am, what I am, how I am, and how I talk. And so I'm going to send Jesus to be a reflection of me. And we understand that when God sends Jesus, it's not just sending a Savior. He is sending the Christ. He is sending the image of God. And so he tells us right here, the angels say, do you understand? This isn't just simply a spotless lamb coming to die for your sins. God is sending a reflection of himself. 
So when we look at the model, we look at the life, we look at the example of Jesus Christ, we have a greater understanding of who God is because of what we see in Jesus. So why does that make a difference to us, Spence? Why does that make a difference to where we're at in this world? Because the angels are sitting there and they're looking at the shepherds. The shepherds might be thinking, okay, so this Jesus, this Jesus is the Savior. That's great. So what does that mean for me? How am I to live? What am I to do? How do I model my life? How do I structure my life? All these questions that come when it comes to being a Christian. So what do the angels tell the shepherds? Not only has God sent a Savior to forgive you, to save you from your sins, but God has sent a Christ to show you the way to live. Now, I realize that Jesus came and he lived a sinless life. And I realize that Jesus came and he lived a perfect life. And I realize that you and I look and go, well, I can't keep up with that and I can't do anything like that. And we just kind of dismiss it and like, okay, so therefore that doesn't apply to me. But how many of us look at other people in the world and say, we want to be like them? I remember back in the mid, I'm going to date myself, but back in the mid-90s when Michael Jordan was just the stud basketball player. And there was this poster. uh, And it was him jumping from the free throw line. And you remember he was like that upside down Y. And he was jumping from the free throw line. He had his tongue out. ah, And he was just soaring through the air with the basketball up here. His legs spread. And you could just see dominance all over his face. And I remember that poster being all over the place. And people wanted to be just like Mike. And as a white boy... As a white boy, I thought, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I thought, well, you know what? If he can do it, I can do it. And I remember me back there with my homie G's, and we would sit there, and we would come to the three-throw line, and we would jump, and we'd do our best impression, and we'd land about six foot short. You know, I didn't look at that poster and think, well, you know what? I can't do that, so therefore I'm not even going to try to jump. I'm not going to try to shoot. I'm not going to try to dribble. I am not going to try any of that because I can't come close. No, you look at that and say, I want to try to see how close I can get to mimicking that. Well, that's what we do when we come to God's Word. God's Word gives us the life, the model, the example of Jesus Christ. Why? To show us an example of what Christ expects of us. We see the humility of Christ, and that gives us a model for us to follow. We see the love of Christ, and that gives us a testimony of what to embody. We see the physical presence of God in Jesus Christ. We understand that this has been given to us, so we say, this is how we shall live. So it wasn't like God came down and said, here's the expectations. Here's the mandates. Here's the rules. Now you figure it out. No, God sent us Jesus so that we might know what it looks like to live a life pleasing to God. So that we might know what faithfulness looks like in the eyes of God. So he sends us the Christ. Social media is a very unknown phenomenon. My understanding of social media is that there is a computer program called an algorithm. This idea of the algorithm is that as you interact with the software and as you interact with the program, the program tailors itself to you. So they look and they see how long I was on a particular page, what I clicked on, what I liked, what I didn't like, and this adapts to where it starts to show me those things that I want to see. 
And before you know it, you think that you're getting a very objective perspective when actually the whole program is designed to feed you exactly what you want to hear, exactly what you want to see, and exactly the things that make you happy. And in our lives today, so often we start to surround ourselves with people and things and influences that tell us what we want to hear, tell us how we want to feel, tell us how we want to think, and make ourselves feel good. And so many times we start to say, well, you know what? I have an own idea of what I should be and become a very false, skewed sense of reality. And even in this world today, we can start to think, well, I'm a pretty good Christian. I'm here on Christmas Day. Well, I'm a pretty good Christian. Actually, I came to the Christmas Eve service last night, and now I'm here today. You know what? I'm a pretty good super-duper Christian. And we start to think ourselves, we start to evaluate ourselves based upon the people around us, and we start to say, that's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it looks like to be obedient to God. That's what it looks like to be faithful. And we have all these metrics that are influenced by the people around us. And yet when God sent His Son... Jesus, he sent an example of how we should live. So instead of you and I looking at each other and saying, well, you know what, I think I'm a pretty good Christian because I'm better than Ben. I think I'm a pretty good Christian because I have a Bible and no iPad like Greg. I think I'm a pretty good Christian because I do something better. And we start to evaluate ourselves and we stop evaluating ourselves based upon Christ. So do you call him your model? Do you call him your example? Do you call him the standard by which you are to live? So I think many of us in this room might call him our savior. We know we're saved because of Jesus Christ, but how many of us are actively living as if he is the model we are pursuing? I want to love like Christ. I want to live like Christ. I want to be humble like Christ. I want to be devoted like Christ. I want to be sacrificial like Christ. Do you call him your Savior? Do you call him your Christ? But then there's a third definition. There's a third description that the angel gives the shepherds. He says, verse 11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. Who is Christ the Lord? The idea of Lord going back to Curios in the original language, it's just a title of the Lord. And, and really, just if you look at the definition in a dictionary, it means master uh, or owner. It's the idea that when he is a Lord, he is not just the Savior that provides the means of forgiveness of your sins, he's not just the Christ, which is the type, the model, the example for how do you live your life. <coughs> But the angels are telling the shepherds, hey, this baby that you're going to find, this baby in the swaddling cloths, this baby that you're going to find in a manger, this baby that you're going to come across, do you need to understand this is not just a baby. This is the Lord. Now, that's a really hard concept for me. Maybe you just click on it. Maybe you're just like, oh, this makes perfectly good sense. But I can just tell you, if you came to me, I don't care if you got wings and a whole bunch of other choir members with you. You come to me and you say, TC is the Lord, I'm going to be like, no, he ain't. No, he ain't. I watched the thing. Uh, not the thing. I watched him. <laughs> I, I, I watched him be born. Okay? I, I was with his mother for the entire 
gestational period, okay? I, I've seen him cry. I, I, I've seen his human humanity of him. I, and you're telling me that's the Lord. Now, that's the same concept that I think of when the angel comes to the shepherds and says, do you understand? So when you leave this hillside and you go and you find this baby, that baby is the Lord. And I think so many times there's a disconnect between you and I, and we're like, yeah, okay, we know that intellectually, but we don't understand it in our hearts. And I think the same is true when it comes to this position of Jesus. We know that he's the Messiah. We know that he's the Savior. We know that he's the Son of God. But do we do, we truly understand what it means that he is Lord. And so as the shepherds are listening to the angel, the angel says he is the Lord. Not only does that mean that he is the master, the owner of all the creation of all people, but also it sums up the deity and the authority and says when you have something that is described as the Lord, not only is it not uh, in the human sense uh, one of the same of us, but it is the idea that the position they have in our lives supersedes anything else. When you talk about the Lord, you're talking about a position of authority that ranks above our employer, ranks above our relationships, ranks above our friendships, ranks above even the IRS. And the angel looks at the shepherds and says, this Jesus is the Lord. This Jesus is more important than any responsibility or priority or opportunity or obligation. This Jesus is more important than money, contentment, or security. This Jesus is more important and has more authority than you your neighbor, your family. You see, this Jesus, because he is the Lord, means that whatever he says is true. And that wherever he says to go is good. And that we now have an opportunity to respond to the direction he is sending us. So many times in this world we start to say, well, you know what, they may be in charge until I decide something else. Or maybe the idea is that, yeah, I'll do what the Bible tells me until the Bible tells me to do something that I don't want to do. Or maybe I'll do what the Bible says when it's convenient. I'll do what the Bible says when it's comfortable. I'll do what the Bible says when I'm ready. I will do what the Bible says when it's something that I enjoy. And yet the shepherd is being told by the angel that he is the Lord, which means that it doesn't matter whether you like him. It doesn't matter whether you agree with him. It doesn't matter whether you want to hear what he has to say, he is in charge. And the reality is, as the angel is going to tell us, and as Paul is going to tell us later on, that there is going to come a time that every one of us in this room and every one of us in this world and every one of us in all of creation for all time will submit and acknowledge that Jesus is the Lord. Let me read for you out of Philippians chapter 2 and starting in, uh, starting in verse 4. This is what Paul writes. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. 
who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul says, do you understand what this means? This means that every single person will bow to him as Lord. Every person will submit to God. So we understand what we're looking at today. That he is the Savior and he is. He is the Christ, the model, the example that he is. But he's also our Lord. So you might be here this morning and you may say, well, Spence, you know what? I call him my Savior because I know I've been saved. I know he forgives me of my sins. That is good and that is right and that is true. Some of you may be here this morning and you may say, and I also call him my Christ. He is my model. He is the example. He is the testimony that I am seeking to ordain my life to. But how many of us in this room call him Lord? Whatever you say, God, that's what we'll do. Wherever you say, Lord, that's where we'll go. Whatever you require, that is what I'll give. Whatever you expect, that is what I will do. Many of us are comfortable calling him our Savior. But we won't call him our Christ. And even fewer of us are willing to call him our Christ but we're not willing to live as if he is Lord. Early on in the ministry, and it's going to happen this February, there's always, usually seems like the end of January, the middle part of February is when you get a lot of the snow and the ice. And early in ministry, I was very gung-ho, and I was very like, we're not canceling church for anything. I don't care if the tornado is on top of the church. We're not canceling services. And I don't know, some of you had different opinions on some of these, some of these affairs, but I remember early on in ministry, here it comes, middle part of February, you had a good ice storm, a good snowstorm, and they're like, preacher, you know what, we just need to suspend service, we just need to cancel service, that way everybody can stay in and everybody can be well. And I thought, okay, all right, that's what we need to do, that's good, that's right. And then the very next day, when everybody on Sunday said they couldn't come to church because of the weather, Everybody gets up, and they went to work. I don't know, that may be you. I may be already stepped on your toes. I love you. But it's a challenge for me. It's a challenge for me to reconcile when we will let out in church on Sunday, but everybody goes to work on Monday. And it's a challenge, not because of the fact that I want to be legalistic or because of the fact that I want to say, well, this is, the, this is the standard, you know what? And if you don't go to church on Sunday, but you go to work on Monday, then you get put in the naughty column. I'm not trying to say anything like that. I'm just trying to say that there are all kinds of opportunities that we are given throughout our daily lives to identify which is Lord of our lives. Satan gives us opportunities. The Holy Spirit gives us opportunities. Life gives us opportunities to show us what is the Lord of our lives. 
angel comes to the shepherd. And he gives the shepherd the good news and says, do you understand who this is? You're going to leave here. You're going to go see the baby. You understand the first name of the baby is Jesus. But then let me tell you the title. Let me tell you the description. Let me tell you who this is. And it's not a matter of debate. It's not a matter of agreement. It's not a matter of acceptance or approval. The angel says, this is who Jesus is. So then how do we celebrate this name? Just three quick ways, and we will end in some musical worship. Three quick ways. Number one, we can celebrate by remembering a Savior came so we can be forgiven. Not just you. I say we intentionally because it's not just you. It's anybody in this community. It's anybody that comes in and out of Bev's. It's anybody that comes in and out of the Dollar General. It's anybody that you come in contact with. It's anybody that you're going to be there maybe today in the family gatherings or maybe the work parties leading up to this. It's anybody. A Savior has came so that we can be forgiven, which means that anybody that you come in contact with, the Bible says, can be saved. And we have an opportunity to get excited about that. We have an opportunity to say yes. So every person you come in contact with, it doesn't matter about their sin. It doesn't matter about their past. It doesn't matter about their behavior. It doesn't matter about their background. It doesn't matter about their experience. It doesn't matter about anything. Anybody can be saved. That's great news. That's great news for a hurting nation. It's great news for a hurting people. But not just the Savior came so we can be forgiven. A Christ came so we might know how to live. Jesus came, gave us an example, he gave us a model, and he said, this is what it looks like to pursue after the things of God. And we have a model, we have an example, we're not just trying to figure it out. Oh, praise the Lord that God has sent us his son so that I might know how I should live. Sometimes I wish he'd give me a little more slack. Sometimes I wish he'd had a few more relapses with crouton and ice cream. Sometimes I wish that I could see, hey, you know what? He lost his temper. He got in the flesh. And you know what? So I don't have to beat myself up so much. I wish, I wish there were things that he would have filled in the blanks on. And I wish there were things that he would say, this is what you do in this instance or that instance. But no, he's given us an example, the example that I need. Maybe not the example I want, but the example that I need of what it means to live faithfully before God. And Christ came so we might know how to live. So, so, when you're talking to people, and it's not a matter of saying, well, I think. Well, I believe, well, I, my experience is, or so-and-so said, or so-and-so is doing, you and I can go back to Christ and say, here, Jesus said, Jesus did, Jesus modeled. And this last one, the Lord came. A Savior came so we can be, so we can be forgiven. A Christ came so we might know how to live. The Lord came that we might know God. Philippians 3 and verse 10, Paul says, For my determined purpose is that I may know him. See, I did that. We are living this life not to know one another or not to be known by one another, but we are living this life so that we might know God. And so when the angel is looking at the shepherds and he is giving the shepherd the good news, he says, this is why this is great news. I bring you good news because not only has God sent a Savior to forgive you of your sins, not only has God sent a Christ to show you how to live, God has sent you the Lord, the Curios, so that we might know 
God. So then it comes back to where we started this morning. What do you call him? I pray this morning that you call him your Savior. And I challenge you this morning to call him your Christ. And my hope is that every single one of us call him our Lord. And I think there's a difference. I think you can call him your Christ and not live like he's your Lord. So I don't know where you may be at in your life. I don't know where you may be at in your walk with him. But as we come into this Christmas morning, may we not only celebrate a baby, but may we recognize the Lord. Let's pray.